and the only person left in the building was a black woman, a charwoman, who was sweeping the floor and mopping. It's 1942, a summer evening in Washington, D.C. In the offices of the Farm Security Administration, Gordon Parks is several months into a year-long fellowship as a government photographer. 29 years old, black, struggling to document the racism he's appalled to find in the nation's capital. Bigots, he would later write, have a way of looking just like everyone else. His boss sees the woman in the hallway, calls to Parks, go have a talk with her before you go home this evening. See what she has to say about life and things. You might find her interesting. So I introduced myself. She told me her name was Ella Watson. And I asked her if I could photograph her. Watson is 59 years old, with short hair, wire rim glasses, and a polka dot dress with puffy sleeves and two missing buttons. Photograph me like this? I said, yes. Parks photographs her not just that evening, but many times over the next six weeks or so. Watson and her family at work, at home, at church. In the Library of Congress, filed under the Farm Security Administration, Lot 156, are dozens and dozens of these pictures. Most of them captioned, Mrs. Ella Watson, government charwoman, or sometimes simply, government charwoman. But the most famous photograph is one from that very first night. Parks and Watson go into a room with tables and chairs, a typewriter with its cover neatly drawn over it, and a large flag hanging down from a wall. At first, Parks simply follows Watson as she moves around the space, cleaning. And then he settles her in front of the flag. I put a broom in one hand and a mop in the other and told her to look directly into the camera. A few days later, he shows the photograph to his boss, who doesn't say anything at first. He's speechless. Finally, he smiles and says, This woman has done you a great service. I hope you understand this. Then he takes the photo as if to hide it, and says, you're going to get us all fired. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, where the new exhibition American Gothic Gordon Parks and Ella Watson opens January 6th, featuring nearly 60 of Parks' photographs of Watson and her community taken in 1942. The object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture and the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the unlikely story behind one of the world's most famous photographs, a story of strength and resilience, of the power of being seen. The story of government charwoman, CU2. I'm Tim Gearing. 
Let's talk about Gordon Parks for a moment. Growing up in the 19-teens and 20s, the youngest of 15 children in Fort Scott, Kansas, Parks is stoned and beaten and called every epithet you can imagine, and some you probably can't. When he's 11, he develops a fear of death, because death is suddenly everywhere. He sees his friend killed in the street, He's paid by a policeman to swim around a river with an ice hook, looking for the body of a black man shot by this same policeman. He's thrown in the river himself by three white boys who think he can't swim. Somehow, he stays underwater until they leave. When he's 14, his mother dies, and what's left of his family begins to break up. Parks goes north to Minnesota to live with a sister in St. Paul. But her husband throws him out in the middle of winter. You'll see, Parks shouts at him in the street. I'll make it. You'll see. Parks almost doesn't make it. St. Paul is cold now in winter. It was even colder then. And Parks has no home, hardly any food. He's riding around in a streetcar at night to stay warm. The only work he can find is playing piano in a brothel and bussing tables at nightclubs. But one day, in another almost mythical Gordon Parks moment, he's noodling around on the piano at one of these clubs when the band arrives. The band leader asks what he's playing. And just like that, his song gets broadcast live on the radio. Pretty soon, he's playing in a legit jazz orchestra touring the country. The orchestra breaks up a short time later. But when Parks returns to St. Paul, he starts working as a porter on trains. And he finds magazines left on the seats and admires the photographs. And on one of these trips, when he's in Seattle, he buys a camera. All his life, Parks has been getting into fights, right? Mostly with racists. Fights with knives and guns. Crashing through plate glass windows. Sometimes landing in jail. But now he has the camera. His choice of weapons, as he later puts it. Over the next few years, he shoots clothing for department stores, then moves to Chicago and shoots fashion and artists, and sometimes the tenements and gambling dens on the south side, and the young black men killed in knife fights on the street. It's these photos of the black lives that white America scarcely acknowledges that earn him the fellowship in Washington. Parks arrives in Washington on a cold day in January 1942. And when he meets his new boss, this guy named Roy Stryker, the first thing Stryker does is take away his cameras, locks them in a closet. Go shopping, Stryker says. Go get some food. Go see a movie. Then come back 
and tell me what happens. So Parks goes out. And when he tries to buy a camel hair coat from a nice department store, he's told that he can't. When he tries to get breakfast at a drugstore counter, he's told that he can't. When he tries to see a movie, he's told he can't. Parks goes back to Stryker. Give me my cameras back. Why, Stryker says. And Parks says, I want to show the rest of the world what your great city of Washington, D.C. is really like. No. First, I want you to put it all down on paper. And Parks is like, what? Stryker says, you say you want to fight these things. Well, what's your plan? Parks goes home, and in one long, furious evening, he writes down all the terrible things that have happened to him. And he shows it to Stryker the next day. And Stryker says, you've had quite a time. Now, simplify it. You can't just take a picture of a white guy at the movies and say he's racist. So Park spends weeks studying the photos in the FSA archive. Those great Dust Bowl images by Dorothea Lang and Arthur Rothstein. I have to study more and more, he tells a benefactor back in Chicago, and learn the art of making each picture tell a definite story. When Parks approaches Watson in the hallway that night in 1942, he doesn't take a picture right away. He asks Watson about her life, where she's been, what she's been through, how she came to be here, a government charwoman in a government building. And then, when they come into the room with the flag, he asks her to think about these stories she's told him, about her mother dying young, and her father being lynched. About her husband accidentally shot to death two days before their daughter was born. About her daughter dying as a teenager just two weeks after her own child was born. And then Park snaps the picture. In the catalog card at the Library of Congress, Watson's household is listed as herself, an adopted daughter, and five grandchildren. Her salary is listed as $1,080 a year, a little less than $3 a day. They live in the Logan Circle neighborhood of Washington, D.C. There's a Whole Foods there now, hipster bars. But during the Civil War, this was a refugee camp for newly freed slaves then an area of tenements known as Hell's Bottom. By the 1940s, there's a segregated section of Victorian row houses, subdivided into apartments and rooming houses, with a sizable black population. Watson invites Parks into the neighborhood, and he photographs kids running through sprinklers, grocery stores, streetcars packed with people, that sort of thing. Mostly, he shoots inside Watson's apartment. Watson holding her two grandkids, reading the Bible, 
sitting by the little altar she's made on her vanity with candlesticks and flowers and statuettes of saints, rosary beads hanging from the mirror. He poses her grandkids in the mirror, a picture of faith and family. He poses her in the mirror, her head bowed, a picture of Jesus taped up beside her. For weeks, Parks comes by to visit the family and take pictures. And most nights, Watson puts the kids in the care of neighbors and goes to work. Watson has been working like this for about 20 years, starting at 5.30 in the evening, heading home at 1 a.m. in the middle of the night, mostly unseen, existing in a kind of parallel universe, a number in the vast bureaucracy behind the bureaucracy. By direction of the secretary, you have been appointed a charwoman, CU2, reads her letter of hire from the Treasury Department. There is another woman, Watson tells Parks, who works in one of the offices she cleans, with the same education she has, hired at the same time. In fact, they had applied for the same job. Only this woman got it, and Watson got the mob. This woman, it would seem, is not black. In fact, her office is the one with the flag. That summer, the flag is everywhere. Some 300 American magazines have been asked to put the flag on their covers to mark the first Independence Day of World War II, a symbol of the freedoms being fought for overseas, right? Parks would later title his picture of Watson in front of the flag, American Gothic. I really thought of Grant Wood's picture of the American Gothic. I put a broom in one hand. Even later, though, he would say, my first photograph of her was unsubtle. I overdid it. Maybe so. In the iconic photo, she is, like all icons, one-dimensional. Which is maybe why Parks wants to keep shooting her to fill out the story, humanize the icon. Out in the world, Watson is loving, relaxed, ecstatic even, especially at church. Indeed, she's connected to another world beyond this one. One day, Parks follows her to St. Martin's Spiritual Center, also known as Verbrick Spiritual Church, after the minister. In the spiritualist tradition, and with a group of other churches on the East Coast, St. Martin's promotes the power of metaphysics, communication with the dead, seances, psycho-spiritual science, the group calls it. God is love. Think and pray. Come one and all, the church declares, in an advertisement for a midnight seance. Parks is at the church for its annual flower bowl demonstration when worshipers walk through a shallow pool decorated with roses and filled with holy water. Parks gets low, holding his camera to the floor, and shoots the bare feet of women waiting for their turn in the flower bowl. He shoots a woman approaching the pastor, one hand extended toward the reverend, the other holding money. Here, Watson is not anonymous. She's a deaconess. Dressed in white, 
head to toe, white dress, white hat, white earrings. When it's her turn in the flower bowl, she walks through and steps up to the pastor. Her face relaxed, her hand outstretched. The pastor touches her forehead, anointing her, and hands her a long-stemmed rose. In 1948, Parks sneaks the photo of Watson before the flag, American Gothic, out of the government files and runs it over to a small Brooklyn newspaper to be published for the first time. This is what he says much later, anyway, but it's probably not true. The paper folded in 1948, and when a student researcher looks through six years of microfilm to see when the photo appeared in the paper, she can't find it. So the first time it actually appears in print is probably that same year, the spring of 1948, when it runs in Ebony, a magazine for African Americans. Who knows how it got there? If Parks snuck it over or what? But it's the lead photo to an article on the unsolicited help of well-intentioned white people called Do Do-Gooders Do Good. Two years later, in 1950, Another Parks photos of Watson comes out, also in Ebony Magazine. A picture of Watson at church on Flower Bowl Day. By then, Parks is in Paris. He's taking what he learned from the Watson shoot. Listen to your subjects. Get close to them. Let them lead. And becomes the first black photographer at Life, the country's biggest picture magazine, right? On his first assignment as a freelancer, he followed a gang leader named Red Jackson into the streets of Harlem, shooting him, slugging it out with rivals, hiding in abandoned buildings, mourning a friend killed on the street. The photos earned him the job. And now, in France, he's working at the Paris Bureau, shooting fashion shows and American expats, like a group of American teenagers hanging out in a left-bank jazz club, working on their ennui. In his free time, he goes to concerts and museums, writes poetry. For the first time in his life, Park says, he feels relaxed. In the mid-1970s, Parks is on a plane, famous now as a photographer and writer, having worked for life for nearly three decades, but also as the director of Shaft, the 1971 movie about a black private eye who gets the job done, a chance for black audiences, as he puts it, to see a black guy winning. He looks down at the newspaper he's reading, and there's Ella Watson, with the broom and the mop and the flag, more than 30 years later. As he tells the story, he decides then and there to finally get back the negative to what's become a signature image. So he flies to Washington, finds the archive of the Farm Security Administration, and a young black man in charge of the files sneaks Parks into the storeroom. There, near the bottom of a pile of negatives, is the shot of Watson with the flag. It wasn't until then, Parks would say, that most people, white people, would be ready to see it. 
Well, let's go back to the 1940s, to the government offices where Parks found Watson. Watson retires as government charwoman in 1944, actually just two years after Parks photographs her. She's 61, tired, having worked for most of her six decades in backbreaking labor. She takes a part-time job with the District of Columbia. And then, even as her image becomes more and more seen in American Gothic, she fades from view, leaving a paper trail mostly from employers, men who hardly knew who she was, one recommending she be laid off, another recommending she be forcibly retired on disability, even though she didn't want to retire yet. Storekeepers trying to collect bills. A letter from her saying, Dear Sir, I intend on paying that bill, but has had sickness and death in my family. Capital D, death. Please don't write here anymore. When she dies in 1980, at 97, there's a short obituary in a Washington newspaper. Nothing about parks or American Gothic, where she worked or any of that. Just one line, noting her six grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. In the end, perhaps, this is all that matters. In 2019, Sonia Clark, a black artist who now teaches at Amherst College in Massachusetts, creates a blue polka dot dress with a button missing, gets a metal bucket and a dish towel with a Confederate flag design, red with the blue cross and stars. And that spring, she stages a performance at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia, the heart of America's founding, The floor of a gallery is covered with dust, taken from historical sites throughout the city. And she fills the bucket with water, gets down on her knees, and starts scrubbing. No words are spoken. There's only the sounds of water and rag being dragged across the floor. And as the dust disappears, words appear on the floor, in cursive writing, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so on, until the bucket is filled with filthy water and the words of the preamble to the Declaration of Independence are revealed in a snake-like pattern, like, don't tread on me that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety.
This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, with generous support from Ameriprise Financial. Check them out at Ameriprise.com. Check us out at artsmia.org. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Tim Gearing. Starting next month, new episodes, bonus episodes, and more. Until then, happy holidays, happy new year, and thanks very much for listening.